Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me today for today's scripture reading found in Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Calvary, and Happy New Year. We have finally made it to 2021, and uh, we're going to hope and pray that 2021 has great things in store for us, uh, better than 2020 for sure. I want to remind you all uh, that this morning is going to be a communion uh, a morning for us, first Sunday of the month, and so I want to just encourage you, if you haven't uh, done so yet, to get your communion uh, supplies here and be ready uh, f- uh, for that at the end of the sermon uh, this morning. This morning, uh, we continue on with our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And if you're new to Calvary, perhaps you got a New Year's resolution or you're going to go to church in 2021, we're glad you are here. And if you're new to Calvary, since January, a year ago, uh, in 2020, we've been tracking along with the single overarching story of the Bible. The Bible tells a single overarching story, and we're about, we're about halfway through. You might be saying to yourself, a whole year? I mean, that's a long time. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a long book. You know, it's got a lot of story there. So since uh, last week, when we laughed, last uh, left Jesus, he was hiding out in the small town of Nazareth as a child. And this morning, the curtain lifts about 30 years later in the wilderness of Judea. And John the Baptist, the prophesied forerunner of the promised one, sent in advance 
of the day of the Lord is preaching by the Jordan River. And we've met John uh, during Advent a little bit ago. Uh, we met John as the one who has prophesied who was to come before the day of the Lord. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. You think about all the Old Testament prophets that we've interacted with over the course of this series. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's sent to usher in the new age of God's redemptive activity. And so towards this end, and you'll have noticed, I hope, from our scripture reading, John draws a contrast between his baptism and the baptism of Jesus, the one he's come to prepare the way for. In verse 11, John says that his own baptism is a baptism of water for repentance, but the baptism of Jesus who comes after him is mightier than him, and it will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And so this first Sunday of January, it always marks the kind of season of new beginnings. So it's fitting that in our text this morning, we're also highlighting this transition to a new beginning, the close of the old covenant and the dawn of the new covenant. Perhaps you need a new beginning this morning. I think after 2020, I think all of us need a new beginning this morning. But not just a new beginning in your circumstances, but a new beginning in our hearts and in our lives and in the core of who we are as human beings. So as we get into our text this morning, we want to see what this new beginning that's being introduced with Jesus is all about. Our focus is going to be verse 11 when John says that Jesus' baptism is greater than John's baptism. And we're going to pay most attention to that, and I'm going to draw some applications uh, from that statement of John. But we want to build up to that statement to make sure we understand exactly what John is talking about when he says that Jesus' baptism is greater than John. So follow along with me as we work our way up to verse 11 in our text. All right, so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, John is introduced here in this passage as a prophet preaching in the wilderness. He's dressed exactly like Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8. So you turn back in your Bibles, you don't have to do it now, but 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah as described as dressed with a garment of animal hair and a leather belt, and that's how John is described, which of course shouldn't surprise us for at John's birth, he was prophesied as being the Elijah who was to come in advance of the Lord's arrival. So it makes sense that he's dressed like Elijah. He's playing the part of Elijah. And now he has finally come. And the message that John is preaching is not a feel-good, your-best-life-now sort of message, but rather a message of repentance and preparation. He's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right upon us. Verse 5 tells us that all those in Judea, Jerusalem, the surrounding region are coming out. They're flocking out into the wilderness to listen to the preaching of John and to be baptized by him. And along with the crowds that come out to hear the preaching of John and receive baptism come the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the the right wing and the left wing of the Jewish religious political leadership. So these are the religious and political leaders of Israel. And when John sees them coming, he warmly welcomes them and thanks them for coming out. And actually, no, he, he doesn't. He, 
I mean, quite frankly, he just, he insults them. The first thing he does when he sees them coming is he calls them a brood of vipers, which in the first century context likely was as offensive then as it would be now. And he demands to know who warned them to flee from the wrath that was to come. Now, John's expression, vipers fleeing from coming wrath, likely is meant to conjure up or refers to what a person back in those days would have seen when a field was set on fire to winnow out all the weeds and the, the dead brush. The snakes would scurry out of the field ahead of the coming wrath of the flames. So John is basically saying you're just a bunch of snakes scurrying away from God's pending judgment. And then he calls the religious leaders to repent, just like he's calling everyone else to repent. Now, John knows the religious leaders pretty well. So in verse 9, he anticipates their rebuttal or their rejoinder to him calling them to repentance. And so he says to them, and don't think that you can just say to yourself, we're children of Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. John says, don't think you can just say that to yourself because God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. You're going to need more than hereditary descent from Abraham to ab absolve you of the need to repent. Now, I want to pause here and make sure that we understand this. Why John anticipates this objection, as it were, from the religious leaders and then why he overturns it. Why would the religious leaders think that being children of Abraham would absolve them of the need for repentance? Now, to make sense of this, I want to rewind us back a little bit and recount a couple of the salient points from this larger narrative of Scripture that we've been telling. So all the way back again to the beginning... Genesis chapter 2, we looked at and read how God breathed the breath of life into humanity on the day of creation. Humanity doesn't live by its own breath. We live by the breath of God. The term breath and the term spirit are the same Hebrew word. They're used interchangeably. So the, the, the spirit by which we live, the breath by which we live, is God's own breath or his own spirit that he breathes into us. But then in Genesis 3, we got to the crisis of the story. Humanity chooses to go its own way, rejecting God's plans and purposes for humanity. And this uh, act of disobedience essentially breaks humanity. Shame, blame, ignorance, violence, a servile fear of God, all of these are introduced into the human experience because of humanity's sin. Like a car that's lost its steering and its brakes, humanity no longer functions properly. We're still moving, but we're careening out of control. And so at the end of Genesis 3, God delivers two pronouncements. He delivers a covenantal promise. And we've been talking a lot about this covenantal promise over the past uh, year, and especially the last number of weeks as we got to Advent. He delivers a covenantal promise, and he delivers a judicial death sentence. The covenantal promise, of course, is that God will send a son of Eve to fix everything to put things right. 
The judicial death sentence, though, results in humanity's removal from the garden. Humanity is cast out of the garden into exile and into death. God is essentially taking back his divine breath, taking back his divine spirit. Well, the story continues on and the dying Eve begets her son, the dying Seth, who begets his son, the dying Enosh, who begets his dying children. And on and on it goes with dying people begetting dying people until we get to Abraham. And God promises the dying Abraham that through his offspring, this promised one who will bring life, this promised one will come and life will once again be restored to humanity. And then later in the story, God promises or God gives rather the law to Abraham's family through the prophet Moses. The law is meant to serve as a guide that's going to preserve Abraham's family while they wait for the promise of life to come true. So all well and good. A lot of ups and downs and twists and turns throughout our story. But, but over time, Abraham's dying family begins to lose its way. And, and not through disobedience, but ironically through obedience. They begin to pride themselves on the fact that they have been singled out with a special blessing and that they have been uniquely given the laws of God. And subtly, the religious leaders of Israel begin to think that the promise of deliverance and the gift of the law were sufficient in themselves to preserve the people of Israel from the judgment that had befallen all of humanity, as though being promised a gift of life was the same as receiving the gift of life. And so by the time we get to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and John in Matthew chapter 3, the religious leaders wrongly think that simply because they are part of the chosen family of Abraham, because they are descendants of Abraham and possessors of the laws of God, that that was enough to deliver them from the general plight of humanity. But it wasn't. What they had forgotten, and especially the religious leaders had forgotten this, and within the religious leaders, especially the conservative Pharisees, was that their father Abraham was just as much a dying son of Adam and Eve as every other human being. And being dying children of a dead father wasn't going to save them from the curse of death that had befallen all of humanity. So let me give an illustration here. This is kind of riffing off a little bit of a St. Irenaeus from the second century. But he would talk about the devil taking over the world and he would describe the devil as a tyrant taking over a city. So follow me along with me in this illustration here. A tyrant in the ancient uh, and the ancient world takes over a city and the city's uh, gate is then locked and no one is allowed to leave the city without permission from the tyrant. And so the city descends into chaos and strife. It's mismanaged. There's hunger. There's economic ruin. There's legal and contractual agreements that are voided. There's no more law and order. Mercy and justice are led to the center of the town and hung on the gallows as it were. And it's a bad situation. 
But then within the city, a prophecy is given by divine oracle to an otherwise insignificant family of the city that from their family will come a, the rightful king of the city who will overthrow the tyrant. And along with the promise, the family is given instructions about how to live in the midst of the chaos and the strife of the city. And the instructions are meant to prepare and to preserve the family for the day of this king's arrival amidst all of the social and cultural upheaval of the city. But over time, this chosen family gets so good at believing the promise and following the instructions that they begin to look down their noses at the other families floundering around in the city without hope or knowledge until at last the chosen family forgets that they're in the exact same plight as every other family in the city. They have the promise and they have the instructions about how to live, but they are still captives of the tyrant, just like every other family in the city. That's the story of the world. And that's the story of Abraham's family. The corruption of sin and the judgment of death negatively impacted all of Adam's children, Abraham's family, no less. So when it came to Israel's chief problem, the pious children of Abraham were no better off than the pagan Gentiles. Everyone was in the same boat, adrift in the same sea of corruption and death, which is why John is preaching a message of repentance to everyone. He's basically saying, stop relying upon your ancestral heritage or your religious privilege. Being a child of Abraham can't save you. Repent of your sins and prepare yourself for the arrival of God's kingdom. Which brings us then finally to verse 11 and the comparison that John makes between his baptism and the greater baptism of Jesus. John says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who comes after me is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what does this mean? What does it mean that John baptizes with water for repentance, but Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Now, I want us to think about the distinction that John is making here in light of everything that John has just said and implied about the plight of humanity and the futility of being a descendant of Abraham. John says that his baptism is a baptism for repentance. To receive John's baptism is to acknowledge that even as a pious Jew, you are nonetheless still a child of Adam, a victim of corruption and death. John's baptism is a baptism of admission of sin and the fallen condition. It's a baptism of contrition. So it's all well and good. But here's what John's baptism is not. It's not a baptism that solves the problem. It only recognizes and admits that there is a problem that needs to be solved. Repenting does not change one's innate condition. If you are corrupted by sin and under the judgment of death before you repent, then you will still be corrupted by sin and under the judgment of death after you repent. Listen to the thoughts of St. Athanasius about the ultimate futility of repentance to deal with sin. 
Athanasius was a, uh, he was a uh, church father and a theologian from the fourth century. Listen to what he says. I think this is very insightful. He says, Repentance does not call human beings back from what they have become in nature. It merely keeps them from acts of sin. Now, if the problem was merely an offense and not a consequent corruption, repentance would be well enough. But if through transgression, human beings become corrupted in their nature and become deprived of grace, which they had at first, what further step was needed? He asks. Athanasius and John, really the whole New Testament, are both saying that the problem caused by sin runs deeper than repentance can solve. Trying to repent your way out of the plight of Adam and the consequent corruption would be like getting drunk, falling down the stairs and breaking your neck, and then trying to repent your way out of your broken neck. You can't repent your way out of your broken neck. Repentance can't solve that problem. Your sinful action has led to a ruined condition, and that's humanity's plight. Our sinful actions have resulted in a ruined condition and repentance can't fix it. The corruption of sin has wound its way like a cancer into our souls. I mean, Happy New Year, right? But this is the reality in which we find ourselves. That doesn't mean, of course, that all of us are in fully advanced stages of cancer, just like with physical cancer. Sometimes you can look at a person and tell they have cancer. And sometimes you can look at a person and not tell they have cancer. They actually look very healthy. In fact, they may not even themselves realize that they have cancer. But cancer, nonetheless, if left unaddressed, is always fatal. And that is the reality of sin. And this is the great scandal on, the great stumbling block of Christianity. Christianity, uniquely, among all the other religions of the world, Christianity uniquely insists that humanity is broken, irreparably broken in our own devices. I have a friend who I've been talking with on and off over the last number of years about Christianity. He's not a Christian. Uh, and he and I were talking about the Christian idea of sin. And for him, Christianity's concept of sin is the thing that he finds most objectionable about Christianity. He thinks it's such a negative and defeatist view of humanity. And I'm quite sympathetic uh, with the idea that Christians can be and have been, and I think I have myself, particularly at times uh, in the past, particularly in my younger years, have been quite heavy-handed in our articulations of sin. And we always need to remember that just as much as the Bible talks about the reality of the sinfulness of humanity, that the Bible also talks about uh, the fact that we have been made in the image of God. And even after sin, we still retain the beauty of the image of God. There is still much beauty and goodness in humanity and even in fallen humanity. It's not as though we all come out of the womb like little baby orcs. That just isn't the reality in which the, we find ourselves. But at the end of the day, we can't get away from Christianity's insistence that human beings have irreparably broken themselves. We're just not what we should be. And we can make all the New Year's resolutions we want about how we're going to improve ourselves. And we can make ourselves a little better here and there. But we cannot fix the fundamental problem of humanity. 
It's one of Christianity's cardinal doctrines, the reality of indwelling sin, whether we like it or not, whether it's popular or not. And the dilemma of sin is not simply that we do bad things. I think most of all of us will admit that we occasionally do bad things. The dilemma of sin is that the bad things that we have done have broken us irreparably. That's the dilemma of sin. And now Jesus' baptism steps into that space because Jesus' baptism marks the arrival of the solution of the innate corruption and death that now bedevils humanity. Let's go back to Athanasius' quote. He's asked this question. Let me reread the question and then we'll get the answer from him. But if through transgression human, be human beings became corrupted in their nature and became deprived of the grace which they had, what further step was needed? And here's Athanasius' answer to the question they just asked. For being the word of the Father and being above all, he, referring to Jesus, alone was able to recreate everything. Repentance is not enough, John is saying. And Athanasius goes on to make this point as well. Repentance is not enough. We need the word of God, who is Jesus, to recreate us to put us back together again. Humanity lost the breath or the spirit of God when we were exiled from the garden. But in Jesus, the holy breath of God, the Holy Spirit, the life of God that had been lost in Eden is restored through Jesus. And that's why Jesus' baptism is superior to John's baptism. John's baptism was an admission that we needed the Holy Spirit, the holy breath of God. Jesus' baptism is the Holy Spirit, the holy breath of God. John rightly saw that he was merely a forerunner, an announcer of humanity's plight. Jesus is the answer to humanity's plight. All right, so what does all this mean here then for you and I at the start of 2021? At the very least, it means that we need to stop trying to merely repent our way out of sin and its consequent corruption. Here's how I think it goes a lot. We mess up, however we mess up. We all mess up in all sorts of different ways. You've got your ways of messing up. I got my ways of messing up. We mess up and then we attempt to resolve the mess up by purposing to do better next time. So we double down on the strength of our will. We call forth all of our power only to fall again in the same way. Maybe your problem, maybe our problem, is that we're trying to move forward in the Christian life by relying upon John's baptism of repentance rather than Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. Moving forward in Christian maturity does indeed take effort and will, and repentance is the first step in that, but it's not ultimately contingent upon human effort and will. As Paul says in Philippians, it is God who works in us to will and to act. Living the kind of life that God intended for human beings to live is ultimately contingent upon God's effort and will. That's the whole message of Jesus' baptism. It's the whole message of the New Testament. We are to die to self, not rely on self. We die to self and rise with the holy breath, the Holy Spirit of Christ. So as we head into 2021, let me encourage you to take a fresh look 
at what it means for you to depend upon Christ. We all need the holy breath, the Holy Spirit of God to unmake the ruin that our sin has brought into our lives. Indeed, that I think is what the New Testament vision of repentance is really about. It's acknowledging that you can't fix yourself, that the hole that you have fallen into is too deep to climb out of, that you need God's supernatural power to accomplish in you what you can't accomplish in your natural power. Maybe the Lord is calling you to that kind of repentance this morning. Give up on your self-sufficiency and your self-agency and entrust yourself to Jesus's baptism. But there's one more thing we got to say about Jesus's baptism before we turn to communion. John tells us that Jesus's baptism is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Given all of John's comments about repentance and the broods of vipers and the coming wrath of God, the idea of Jesus baptizing with fire sounds a bit ominous. And it is a bit ominous. But in another way, it's reassuring. All throughout the Bible, fire is used as a metaphor for judgment, even destruction. The fact that Jesus' baptism comes with both life breath, spirit, and judgment is actually exactly what we need. Do you recall the two pronouncements that God gave to humanity in Genesis 3 in the garden? He gave a covenantal promise of life and he gave a judicial sentence of death. Jesus' baptism contains both of these realities. Yes, his baptism of the Holy Spirit gives us life, but at the same time, his baptism of fire devours the chaff of our lives. Our sin and our corruption and our brokenness. His baptism of fire puts to death our death. All of us have parts of us that need to be put to death, that need to be burned up in the fire. Maybe some of you this morning you want Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit, but you're stiff-arming his baptism of fire. And it doesn't work like that. We take both or we take neither. We can't reach out for new life with the right hand while we hold on to sin with the left hand. And maybe that's you this morning. You want your alcoholism gone, but you don't want to let go of your autonomy perhaps the peer group that keeps dragging you down. You want your sexual addiction gone, but you don't want to confess it openly for fear of losing the admiration of your friends or perhaps even losing your job. You want your marriage to be better, but you don't want to explore the childhood pain that is complicating your relationship with your spouse. In modern warfare, when the enemy has overrun your lines, the situation can grow so desperate that you have to call in artillery fire on your own position. That's what Jesus' baptism is. It's calling in the holy fire of God upon your own position in order to destroy the enemy that has overrun the lines of your soul. Or said in a different way, to submit to Jesus' baptism is to surrender all of yourself to God, the good, 
the bad, the things you love about yourself, the things you hate about yourself. It's putting all of yourself into God's hands, letting Jesus heal you in what is worth, letting Jesus heal in you what is worthy of redemption and letting him put to death in you what is worthy of death. I could leave you with only one word this morning. It's surrender. Surrender all of who you are to the baptism of Jesus. Let him have his way with you. If you're already a Christian this morning, you've already been baptized, that's great. How you began is how you continue. Live into the reality of that baptismal power in your life. Let it be for you a reminder of God's necessary work in your life. Bringing you life, destroying the chaff in you. If you're not yet a Christian, then let me encourage you to not wait any longer. You maybe New Year's resolutions and you're starting up in 2021 to go to church. Well, going to church can't save you even. You need the baptism power of Jesus, the holy breath, the Holy Spirit of God, and his fire to winnow out all the chaff inside of you. Don't put off the baptism of Jesus. Unite yourself with Christ and receive the holy breath of God and the cleansing fire. God is the hope of the world. God has sent his hope into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus stands open to give himself freely to all who will surrender themselves to him. Let me invite you to surrender yourself to Jesus this morning. Father, thank you that you have given us the gift of Jesus and that he comes into our lives with life and with holy fire. He makes us alive. He cleanses us. He uh, begins the sure work in our lives of leading us forward until the day of ultimate redemption when we are fully and finally all that you have purposed us to be as human beings. God, help us to live faithfully in the midst of this sojourn, this uh, time of life here in the now. Lord, I pray if there's any, even this morning, that need to give themselves to your cleansing work in their lives that you uh, would stir in them by your spirit even this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.